0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And we are continuing our series of the exposition of letters that were sent by our Lord to the seven churches that are in Asia. The title of the series is, The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches, and each of these letters ends with the saying, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. A few days ago, I received a a letter from a former member of our church, and it was a handwritten letter. And I remember uh, thinking how unusual it is today to receive a handwritten letter that someone takes the time to, to sit down, write that letter and put a stamp on it, send it out, uh, maybe in the, put it in the mailbox or go to the post office and leave it there for hopefully the postman to deliver it, post office deliver it sometime in the next three or four weeks or months and it'll show up. We don't do that very much anymore because today we live... In a day of instant communication, we get our updates, we get our news in real time, and so hardly anybody takes time to sit down and write a letter. We we, use, uh, we don't use snail mail anymore. So it used to be if you expected a letter from family member or friends, uh, if you hadn't heard from them a long time and you knew that a letter was coming, uh, you would just sit there and watch the mailbox and hope that the postman would come and then you would get the news from your family or friends to see how they're doing. But we don't do that anymore because we don't have a need to. We have the emails, we have the text and the tweets. We even know immediately when the president sticks his foot in his mouth because we're sure to see the tweet. But on the rare occasion that we receive a letter, it's usually a bill that we didn't sign up for paperless billing. Uh, It's unwelcome news many times. Letters are reserved for critical issues like clean out your stuff because we're repossessing your house, things like that. And maybe you got a letter, have received a letter like one I got recently, not not very long ago, that said uh, property taxes are increasing, so guess what? We're raising your property taxes, and uh, here is your new amount of your escrow payment. Good luck with that. So we get those kinds of letters, and if you get a letter in the mail, uh, besides junk mail, usually because it came in the mail, it's important. And in these two letters, or chapters rather, of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters. Each of them um, were written to one of seven churches located in first century Asia Minor. And although they were handwritten, because all letters were handwritten at that time... These were not common letters. These are very unusual letters. These are letters that were dictated to the Apostle John by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And John wrote this information on scrolls. He sent it out to couriers to these seven churches, and each one of them was addressed to the pastor of the church, and he was to read and explain to his congregation the evaluation that Jesus had of their church. And so in these two chapters, there are seven letters, there are seven pastors, there are seven churches, and each one of them concludes with this command, Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last week, we barely got a start in our study, and I took some time to go over information that is common to all seven of these churches And now we want to begin in verse number 1 of chapter 2 with the salutation of the letter to the church and see what we can glean from this message of the Spirit to the church. Now, the key verse for emphasis is verse number 4, so pay attention as we read there. We're going to read the entire section here, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love." Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." Last week was the background message. We discussed the symbols that we find in verse number 1, and that set the stage for the unrolling of this first scroll and the reading of it to the church. In verse number 1, we see that it was the pastor who received the letter. It says an angel, and this angel is not an angel from heaven. The word angel there simply means a messenger, and the pastor is the messenger of God to the people to... Relate the Word of God from God's Word. Now, the stars are the group of seven pastors of seven churches. The candlesticks are the churches. The churches are the lampstand. Uh, That's the bearer of the light of Jesus Christ, the gospel to a darkened, sin-cursed world. And what we have is some very graphic imagery in these verses that's capped off by the one who holds these seven stars. And this is the one who walks among the churches and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a remarkable description of him in chapter 1. So if you wonder, what does Christ look like in heaven? You can just go back to chapter 1, and you can see he has hair that is white as snow. He has eyes that are like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine polished brass. He has a voice that thunders like a roaring ocean. And the whole appearance of the Lord in glory is as the sun shining in the brightness of its strength at noonday. Most importantly, in that description of him, it says that out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. In a later message, we're going to deal quite a bit with that, the two-edged sword. But what it means is the penetrating word of God that cuts and divides and discerns the deepest recesses of our innermost being. When the word speaks, we need to be silent and listen to what God says. If you receive a letter from him, you don't throw this away. It's not junk mail. You read it, you study it, you agonize over it, and you obey it because this letters, these letters that we have come from the One who has all power and authority in heaven and in earth. And let me remind you that you have received such a letter, and it is, it is voluminous, it is profound, and it should occupy your life. And that letter that you've received is the Word of God and scriptured in the Holy Bible. Many people love Revelation, love the study of Revelation, but they like to zoom past this part. And they want to get to the next parts, And they want to hear about the Antichrist. And they want to hear about the tribulation. They want an explanation of the earthquakes and the stars that fall. They want to know about the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter 6. And they want to know about the two witnesses, who are they, in chapter 11. They want to know about Armageddon and about judgment. They want to know about hell And they want to know about heaven, that you find in chapters 21 and 22. Those are interesting, and those are important parts. But it's also important for us to stop right here at the beginning of Revelation and consider these letters, because chapters 1 through 3 are the revelation of the Christ. The whole book is the revelation of the Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist which so many people want to focus on, but this is the revelation, this is the book of God about the Christ. And we're to contemplate what it says in seven letters that are written to churches. What does the Spirit say to the church? And so we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't want to discard the letters. And I believe that each of these churches receive more than what we read here, just a few lines of rebuke and commendations, But they also received a copy of this entire book, the whole scroll, the entire book that was to tell them what comes hereafter. But there is also this individual message for each church, and that truth, or that, 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 all of this truth is accentuated by the fact that Jesus is going to return, and He will set in motion everything that we read about in this book. The church needs to be ready for that. We need to Heed the corrections that the Lord gives. Those must be made, whether it's a first century church as it was then or it is today. We look for our church in these letters to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first church to receive a letter is the most prominent one of the seven. This is the a church that was located in the largest and most important region Uh, the most important city in that region, and that's the ancient city of Ephesus. There were many, as many as a half million people that lived there, and this church was in a bustling city, and it became a very important church. Paul spent more time at Ephesus than he did any of the New Testament cities uh, on the missionary journeys, that is. This church received more of his attention than the others, and there were many important Christian leaders that passed through the city of Ephesus. And I can imagine that the Lord starts with this church because it's one that you could call a flagship church of the seven. This is one that the other churches looked to, they respected, no doubt, they tried to emulate its ministry. And there are some churches that are like that. They have pastors that receive attention. Uh, other pastors want to build their church on the same model. And I don't necessarily think that's bad, but I can see how that can become overemphasize because God has a variety of ministries and all churches shouldn't be the same. We all have the same truth. There's no question about that. And we all preach the same doctrines we should, but our ministries can vary according to the areas in which we minister. And there're some people that really don't understand that because they want to know, why is it when a missionary goes to another part of the world, we send the missionary someplace else, why does he come back and say, "Well, I built a church that's just like the American church?" Well, he doesn't do that because the culture is different. The same gospel goes there. The same truth goes there. But the people are different in other ways. And so we have to build ministries that are different according to where we are. But it's also true that if we look too much to other churches, the errors that we find in those churches will become our errors. The good that we take, that's fine. But we can also take their errors, and we have to be very careful about that. But as we look at this church of Ephesus, this is a church that was looked to, it was a respected church, and churches that are like that have a greater responsibility to stick to the Word of God. Too often, big, important churches have big, important pastors, or at least they think they are. And so they promote themselves, often they steal the glory of Christ for themselves, And it very well may be that this is a church headed in that direction because we see in verse number 4 that warning. You have left your first love. Something happened in their love for Jesus Christ. Now in verse number 2, he begins with a commendation. He knows this church. Well, of course, he knows them all, but he emphasizes that here, that he knows them, that he watched them, that the omnipresent, omniscient God... Jesus Christ knows everything about them. And I can assure you of this, that He also knows everything there is to know about us. He knows everything about every member of this church. He watches us. He knows what we're doing. And if I could make this critical point, we're not talking about church in the abstract here, and and this is not the institution of the church it's speaking of. This is not an imagined universal entity that nobody can see. This is people. These are people that are grouped together, they're in one spot, they are unified, and they're listening to the Word of God that goes out. This is the body of Christ on earth that is doing His work. Now let's break the message down, let's see what the Spirit says to the church. First we see here that there is, a recog- there is recognition of his fa- their faith. He knows their faith, and to their credit and to the glory of God, their faith was strong. His reference here is not to saving faith. And that's because nobody receives the credit for saving faith. Faith is a gift of God. The church can't consist of people without saving faith, so this is not his commendation for being saved. Every believer is given faith to believe in God. Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, what faith can you boast of to believe to the saving of your soul You can't boast of that because that faith doesn't come from you. That is faith that is given by God. So this is not recognition of their saving faith, but rather he's speaking of a whole body of Christian truth and a faith that has a component of applying itself, of applying oneself who has this faith to the service of God. There are two issues here that define their faith, and that's what we're going to talk about today. These two issues. The first is... Diligent service. Their their faith is recognized because it produced service. And that's the evidence of saving faith. It's always service. And there's no doubt these people are Christians because they worked. And he says in verse number 2, I know your works and your labor and your patience. Their works are their virtuous deeds. The labor is the untiring way in which they pursued those deeds. And their patience is the willingness to do them though experiencing ridicule and persecution of a city that hated their presence there. So they were persecuted, but they didn't stop diligently serving the Lord. Now, as the star, as the angel of the church, and I really like those terms, I told you that last week, the angel of the church, it's my job to give you the message of the Spirit for Berean Baptist. And we have to ask the question, would the Lord commend us for our works? Would he commend us for the labor and the patience to do these works? And as I think of it, I, I, I can say yes and no, that we are blessed with some laborers. We're blessed with people that are ready and willing to be called on. There are some that will volunteer when there's a job to do. Some tell me, I want to work. And they say, find something for me to do. And if there isn't anything that I can think of off the top of my head, then they just say, When something opens up, you call me first. I want to work. And so we have a core group of people in this church, as many churches do, that does the bulk of the ministry. Things don't get done if those people are not here and they don't work. But then on the other hand, we have a group of spectator members. They like to watch, they don't feel as much an urge to do, they know they need to come to church but they really don't want to be over-involved in what goes on. So they're busy, very busy people. They're busy for sure, but they're busy with other stuff. And and if stuff can't wait, then they're sure the Lord can. His business can wait. And so there's nothing to them that is as urgent as what they need to do. Now evidently, as we look at the church at Ephesus, they were better than many of us. And so it's good for us to listen, to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, for those of you that have never met a job that you wouldn't do, and for those of you that are first to hold up your hand, for those of you that shove your stuff aside and put Jesus first, He says, I know your work, and I know your labor, and I know your patience. He knows that, and praise God, our God never forgets it. He never forgets what we do for Him. There are some of you that... You don't care to be recognized for your work. You'll, you'll do it whether I give you a pat on the back. I know that you'll do it, but I want to tell you, I don't want to forget your work either. I like to recognize people. I will recognize you from the pulpit, and I don't do it for your glory. I do it for the glory of God, because God gave you to this church. And I thank the Lord for that, that He gave us workers to do His work. And I know that you're going to serve the Lord because you love Him, not because you get a pat on the back from me. Now, the second vital issue is one of the really, really big reasons that I love this church at Ephesus, and that is their doctrinal strength. The doctrinal strength. I love the Ephesian church because of the powerful doctrine they were taught and they believed. Paul taught them difficult doctrines. Even Peter said Paul's doctrine is hard to understand. Jesus said, you know enough doctrine to tell who is an apostle and who is not. And the only way they could know that was by knowledge of correct doctrine. Does this person who comes to teach us, is he teaching us the same things that we've heard before? Is this what the apostles teach? And they were able to take that message they received from others and to evaluate it and say, this is truth or this is not truth. The apostle John once pastored this Ephesian church, and John said, beware, watch out, because there are many antichrists. John is the only one who used that term in Scripture, Paulus antichristos, many antichrist. There are many deceivers, and they appear at a local church near you. Not all churches are the same. Not all doctrines are the same. There are many denominations, and there are many antichrist. We shouldn't even have to use the word denominations, because Christ church is one. There's only one true church. It's not divided. It doesn't have dozens of contrary doctrines. There are many, many Christians, but there is only one true church. Now, again, the only way that you can determine true pastors and true churches is by the Scriptures. You have to know the Bible to be able to spot false doctrine. These people knew it. They understood doctrine. I mean, they got into things like election and predestination in the Ephesian letter that Paul wrote. He discussed total depravity and total inability. He taught reconciliation through the blood atonement. And they stood in there and they heard what Paul taught and they believed it. And they were much better than many churches today and Christians who won't take that kind of preaching. But this church, this church would take what human ears don't like to hear. And Christ commended them for it. And that's the reason that I love this church, our church. Um, I, I preach the same subjects. You recognize truth and you embrace it. And what do you say? Do you complain because God is sovereign? Do you complain because God works according to the counsel of His will, not ours? No, you don't complain about that doctrine. You rejoice in that because that enables full confidence in God who has this golden chain of salvation that reaches all the way from eternity past into eternity future and you are not the one who holds that chain. God does. And so you understand, my will is depraved and my only hope is that God's will is done, not mine. But that's hard doctrine. That's disputed doctrine. These people could take it. In fact, it didn't bother them at all because that's what Paul taught them. They recognized true apostles and false apostles. They knew when someone was teaching different than what Paul said, or John said, or Timothy said, that person is not to be believed." But strong doctrine is a turnoff in most churches. It wasn't them. And so Jesus says, "I commend you for that." And a pastor loves to preach to people who will think and will drink down deeply into the Word of God. Let me take just a moment to point out some benefits of strong doctrine. First, with strong doctrine, there is no moral compromise. The Lord says here in this text, You cannot bear them that are evil. What does the Word of God teach? Morality. I want you to turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and let's see what he said about morality. I want you to go to the fourth chapter, and uh, rather than just read a lot of this, we're just going to peruse some verses here to see what Paul had to say about morality. He taught this Ephesian church 30 years before they received this letter, and he had some things to say about morality. And in chapter 4, in verse number 22, he says, put off, Your former conversation. That means put off your old way of life. Stop doing the things that you used to do. Put it off with its lust and its deceit, its corruption. In verse 25, he says, stop lying. In verse 26, don't be angry. In verse 28, don't steal. In verse 29, don't speak corruptly. In verse 31, get rid of bitterness, wrath, and malice. And you go down to chapter 5 in verse number 3, and here you see fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. No more of that for you, Paul says. And in verse number 4, no filthiness, no foolish talk, no nonsense. And in verse number 5, no idolatry. This is Paul's morality for people that are living in a culture that did all of these things. And the temptations were always there, always there for Christians to go back to those But he taught them Do not bring those worldly things into the church. And what is it that keeps that junk out of a church? Good doctrine. Strong doctrine will not permit it. It roots out evil and replaces it with good. Now you look at these two chapters in Ephesians again. You go down the list of verses and you'll see in there, be renewed in your mind. Put on the new man, created in righteousness and holiness. You can underline that in verse number 24, chapter 4. Tell the truth. Don't sin. Work with your hands. Help the needy. Speak words that build up others. Be kind-hearted. Forgive one another. And chapter 3, walk in love and give thanks. Why do you do that? Well, look very closely at verses 8 and 9. For ye were sometimes darkness... But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's strong, good doctrine. And you stand back and you watch what happens in churches that abandon strong doctrine. Morality goes down the tubes. Anything goes. Every lifestyle is fine. Many of these churches teach... That the love of Christ is big enough to accept anybody in any way that they want to live. So divorce is okay. Living with your girlfriend, that's okay. Drinking alcohol, that's okay. I mean, you try to find a church in Sonoma County today that teaches you don't drink alcohol. Recently, I was in a Baptist church with with deacons, or heard of this, a deacons and a pastor that have no issues drinking beer and wine in public. Well, at least we don't do that. The deacons and I, we we keep ours hidden under the couches in room 9. So we're we're not going to do it in public. Well, that part's a lie, folks. And Paul says, put away lying, so I put away lying. This is a problem in churches today. Get rid of strong doctrine, and you see how quickly that immorality fills that void. Well, if it's okay to abandon strong doctrine, then why do we have all this talk in Ephesians 4 and 5? where Paul says, here's morality, you do this, you don't do that. And then he goes through commandment after commandment about how Christians should live. And Jesus said, I commend you because you don't bear those that are evil. What did he mean? You don't let it in the church. You don't do it. It's not acceptable, and you'll not walk with people that are immoral. Now, if nothing that we do is evil, and everything's acceptable, how do we turn away from evil? Paul said, put on the new man. But what's the point if the new man is just like the old man? Christ saves us from sin, folks. He doesn't save us to stay in sin. He gave His life for that. And we do incalculable harm. We are guilty of gross negligence to just not say anything about people living in homosexuality or about gender confusion, to continue to let people go on without telling them the wrath of God is coming. But most people will say, well, that's okay. You don't need to talk about those things because they can't change. God made them that way. No, people are born in sin. That's what makes them that way. All of us are born sinful. And this is why God says there has to be a change from sin that comes from the power of God. Christ came to save sinners. And He's able to do it. He saves them from sin because the Bible very clearly tells us Nobody is going to go to heaven without a change, without receiving a new nature from God. And why must the morality change? It's a very, well, I was going to say simple, but it's so profound that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those are sins that mandate a change of morality. And it is not without possibility to change just because we're all sinners and born in sin, because Paul wrote in the very next verse, And such were some of you. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You abandon strong doctrine and you will abandon morality. We don't love people if we don't tell them the truth. So if I say your lifestyle's okay and there's a place in the church for you, no matter what you do and how you live, that makes me a liar. And there is no evidence of saving faith in me, much less in people that do it, now let, let, me, let me say this very, very cautiously, very well. Say it as well that this does not mean that a person who lives an evil lifestyle is unwelcome to come to our church. I'm not saying that. They're not unwelcome to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we hate them? Absolutely not. We do not hate them. Non acceptance of a lifestyle is not hate speech. If so, Paul's guilty. And Jesus is guilty. And God the Father is guilty. No, we teach it because we love souls and we want to give people the truth. We can't coddle sin because Christ doesn't. He died for sin. And He's surely not going to permit the same sins that caused His suffering and His death. Not mine, not yours, not anyone's. And let me make this point very clear, that we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. None of us escapes the wrath of God except by God's grace. And you need to be sure that you understand this, that God is not happy with any sin, not just certain categories of it. Don't condemn somebody else for their sin when you're living in sin, as we all do. He, God doesn't want sin no matter what category it comes from. All sins are condemned, and I'm a sinner. Strong doctrine preaches against my sin. Strong doctrine preaches against mine. It preaches against the deacons. It preaches against the Sunday school teachers. It preaches against the choir members and every member in this church. Strong doctrine reproves us of our sin. But you lay down the doctrine and there you are. You're faced with a moral crisis. And many churches are in the middle of a moral crisis because they stop preaching about sin. Oh, they want to be positive. Positive. So they never speak of repentance, and they never talk about hell or judgment. This Ephesian church was not like that, so Christ commended them. He said, you cannot bear those that are evil. You've kept the church holy in its morality. And if anybody has a problem with all the things I just mentioned in Ephesians and in Corinthians, take that up with Christ, not with me. It's his book, not mine. Now let me finish by looking at one more good result of strong doctrine It prevents moral compromise, and also it prevents... There is no theological compromise. Not morally, not theologically. They didn't compromise. Now, we're taking time with the Ephesian church because, as I said, it's a flagship church. Others take their cue from them. So if this church goes down, other churches lose hope and go into compromise. This is also the only one of the churches, of these seven, that had another New Testament letter that was recorded... And so we know specifically what it was that Paul taught them. And I don't mean the other churches were taught something different. I just know that we can look at the book of Ephesians and we can see the doctrine. And we can go to the book of Acts and we can see the church's history and we know Paul's love for this church. Thus far, there is no doctrinal compromise. You skip down to verse number 6 and it gives an example. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's actually a tough one for us because 2,000 years later, nobody is sure who the Nicolaitans were. I guess Nicolaitans pr- practiced Nicolaitanism, if that helps. We don't know what they were. I-, I heard a preacher say that you are in trouble if you let isms into the church. He said, you know, fundamentalism, Calvinism, Arminianism. He said, we're not any of those. We are traditionalists. And I guess he didn't know that traditionalists practice traditionalism. So he had an ism. It turns out that he missed that one too because his traditionalism was unproved. The closest that he could come in doctrine was to prove that he was in the traditionalism of Indianism, which has been for centuries upheld by Catholicism. So there's a lot of isms in there. But nobody knows what Nicolaitans believed. Uh, Evidently, it was a heresy catching on in the church at the time. We see it again in verse number 15. That's the church at Pergamos, and they liked Nicolaitanism. And Jesus said, I hate it. What is it? Not sure. We'll talk about it again uh, when we get to the church at Pergamos. But some do believe that it was the beginning of a graded ministry. C.I. Schofield wrote, From Nicao to conquer, and Laos the people, or laity. There's no ancient authority for a sect of the Nicolaitans, if the word is symbolic. It refers to the earliest form of notion of priestly order, of clergy, which later divided an equal brotherhood into priest and laity. So what Schofield was talking about was ecclesiastical form of church government. That gradually became the system of Catholicism with the pope and cardinals and archbishops and bishops and so on. It's a form of government favored by... Roman Catholics, the Episcopal Church, Methodists, Episcopal, and so on. But we want to get this very straight as we read the New Testament. That Christ is not writing letters to a church that has a pope. There weren't any Catholics. Catholics came 300 years later. And maybe, possibly, Nicolaitans were the seed of that apostasy. So why do we need strong doctrine? Because it mashes that seed of apostasy under its heel and doesn't let it grow. False doctrines are weeds... And good doctrine is Roundup that kills weeds. Now, I have a little bit of a, a little story to tell you, and then we'll be through. I, I don't usually tell stories. Those of you who come here know I, I'm not a storyteller. Occasionally, I make an exception, and this is a good real-life example of the principle. My oldest daughter, Clarissa, was raised by whom? Guess who? Me. Of course, she was raised by me. She grew up in church, and she learned the same doctrines that I've taught you. Uh, She was married in 2004 to a Christian man that she met in a church in San Diego while she was in law school. And he was a good Christian, uh, but he was a new Christian. And so she began to teach him what she knew. And he had conversations with me, and after a while, he learned uh, our doctrines, and he believed them. So both he and my daughter thought that they were at a church that, was not strong enough and so they began to look for a new church and so they found one which was a new church plant in northern san diego and they joined that church and through the years they supported the church Uh, they helped to build that church but they had a problem and it was the church did not believe the doctrines of grace like she had been taught and so in 2006 i had a talk with the pastor it was the first of several talks that i had with him and we became friends of a sort Although, he doesn't have much of a problem lying about me and what I teach, what I believe. And I'm not bitter about that. I'll just kill him the next time I see him. But I'm not bitter. But way back then, way back then, we could just kind of get along. And uh, I told him 11 years ago, I said, Jason and Clarissa will not stay in your church. I said, they're going to move on. And because your doctrine is too shallow. And they're not going to settle for less. Eventually, I said, they're going to reach the limit of what you teach, and they'll want more. Well, it took more than ten years, not that they didn't reach the limit soon, but rather they were stagnant in their Christian growth. And they were in a church that left them just floating on the surface of the Bible, and they had no depth of doctrine. So they left that church, and they joined a church that's not perfect, none are, but it is a church that teaches the doctrines of grace. And to them, that was like taking a breath of fresh air because it started clearing out all the cobwebs and they could begin to rejoice in the doctrine they learned and they loved. And the incompatibility with that former pastor had one issue at heart, and that is the worldview. They look at the world differently than we do. We believe that God is sovereign and everything that is done is done according to God's plan and purpose to glorify Him. Everything points to the glory of Jesus Christ. And He does not let creatures rule Him, and God does nothing that's contingent upon what we do. God is the one who is always in control. That's another point for another day. Some of you come from churches that never had that explained to you. You, you never had explained to you what Paul and John and Peter taught on those points. And when pastors come to these points, uh, their consistency is completely lost and they're confronted with inconsistencies. But now you're here and you attend Berean Baptist Church and the truth that I teach you, this is not mine. It's not my doctrine that I teach. I'm just reading you straight out of the Bible. Others that I've talked to, I say, where did you get your doctrine? And they would, I'd say, why do you believe what we believe? And they would only say... I read the Bible. And that's what we do. We just read the Bible. It's the master of the church who owns the doctrine. And what it does, it causes you, his doctrine causes you to hate evil. And it causes you to hate theological compromise. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands today, but I have confidence that if I ask you, who of you will not back down now that you know the truth? Hands would go up. I'm sure of that. Maybe I should ask. Maybe it would be quite revealing. If I ask, how many of you will not back down now that you know the truth? Are you going to give up what you know about God now to go back to what you thought you knew about God before? Will you stay with God, who does all things well, or would you rather go back to the God that you believed in before, who bends according to your will? Whatever you want to do, that's what God does. The Ephesian church kept their strong doctrine. Same things that Paul had taught them. Morally, theologically, there was no problem. But, folks, there was a problem. I'll show it to you in the next message. Something went wrong with their love. And if the wrong love takes over, all the theology books in the world will not help. Listen to what the Spirit says to the seven churches. The people are the church. And we just have to ask a question. How would we fare if we received a letter postmarked from heaven, delivered to the Berean Baptist Church, we had better sit and listen to what the Spirit says to the church. In America today, with so much immorality, so much that is going on, the only hope there is to turn things around is the gospel of Jesus Christ preached by His church. So we better be sure we are preaching the right gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time spent in your Word today. Lord, I do pray for our country. I pray for the preachers of this country who still stand strong in the truth of God's Word and want to call us to morality that shows the true and living God. Lord, that we would stick our noses in the Bible, that we would be theologically correct, never surrender to this world that wants us to go back into the culture that we lived in before. Lord, I pray for your people. Help us us to be strong morally and theologically and be the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to some heart today, Lord. Only you can open up a heart to show them how to receive Christ as Savior. Only your Holy Spirit can take blinded eyes, remove the blinders from them, and show the gospel of Jesus Christ. We depend on you for that because we could preach all day long and can never do it. Only the Holy Spirit can. Speak to some soul today, Lord, and we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California,